0: Thank you, guys. That was a wonderful time of worship. Good morning, Grace Life. Happy Father's Day to all of you. Those of you that are fathers, I just thank you for the work that you're doing, pouring your life into your children's lives. It's going to make a difference for years to come and generations to come. That's an amazing thing. And those of you that maybe don't have great relationships, memories with your dad, thank you for taking time to maybe break those chains between that generation and yours. That's an amazing work that you're all doing and I'm just in awe of all of you that are doing that. So thank you very much and welcome this morning. Um, Hopefully all of you got donuts and you're all on a sugar high and will not be able to maybe pay attention to Tommy. Sorry, you know, a lot of sugar going on in this room this morning. Um, So, Yeah, it's a great way to celebrate uh, fathers. Uh, You probably know the drill. You see the uh, QR code up there that you can take your uh, phone's camera and point at it. You will get the scripture. You will get the blog. You will get the way to give your tithes and offerings since we don't pass a plate. All sorts of things in there. And I know I always say things about the blog just because I'm impressed with the things uh, Tommy and Matt put up there. And I just want to encourage you all to read those. So this morning, um, we'll just start with um, our Grace Life welcome. And for those of you uh, who have heard this often, just take time and let this sink in, actually, because I know this applies to everybody and maybe to all of you, especially this morning, that maybe have a weird relationship with your dad. You know, this might land in a new place even this morning. So you can read along with me, you can do it silently with your lips, doesn't matter. To all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a savior, that's all of us, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness and whoever else will come Grace Life Church opens wider doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers welcome. So you are all welcome today. Thank you. So this morning, Tommy is continuing uh, this part two. There's this part 1A of Romans 8 1 to 4 that he started last week. Um, as you, if you know Tommy, you know that he spends hours and hours and has probably weeks of uh, information that he could impart to us. And I know he feels pretty strongly about these verses and how important they are and how they offer a life change to us. That therefore, <laughs> the first word of that is pretty important. And so hopefully it gives us freedom. I was reminded in one of those songs, it says, my gaze finds full forgiveness. And I thought, man, that kind of sums this up. That kind of sums this up. So you don't have to talk. We already s- we sang that verse. It's okay. So anyway, if you'll read with me Romans 8, 1 to 4, it'll be on the screen or, you know, your device. Or if you're old school and have paper, you can follow along there too. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous Requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh But according to the spirit the word of the Lord prepare your hearts for Tommy and Sorry, I didn't wrap that like Sarah did last week
1: If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Tommy, the lead pastor here at Grace Life, and uh, I'll just extend uh, the welcome that Craig already offered, especially to those of you watching from home. Welcome to Grace Life. Welcome to church. And it is Father's Day, and we do uh, take a moment to honor fathers, um, both at home and here in person. And at the same time, we all know today that there's only one perfect father, and there's only one perfect child and we honor him today and his son uh, and and the work that he has accomplished on our behalf and all that that means for us, which is kind of laid out in this chapter. So uh, here's what I want to do. I want to pause and pray and ask God to come and help us all to see these powerful and wonderful truths in this uh, this chapter, but these four verses specifically today, and uh, ask him to remove any distractions. I know it's Father's Day and we probably all have amazing plans And it's going to be easy to drift into that instead of God's amazing plan for salvation that he's executed uh, and accomplished on our behalf. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do need your help today. We need your help taking ourselves out of the way and just gazing at you, just beholding you in wonder, just uh, marinating in these realities and profound truths that are so deep and so rich. So wonderful, so liberating, God. I pray that you would help us. With, without your Spirit, we won't, we won't be able to leave here changed and transformed. So send him today. I pray that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present here today, even within us, helping us, changing us, assuring us, reminding us of, of our security and of your love and of the hope that we have because of these truths. So I pray all these things in the mighty and wonderful and powerful name of Jesus, amen. Well, I told you last time that this chapter in Romans 8 is uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, because of what it tells us about the eternal plan of God, the finished work of Jesus Christ, and the endless power of the Holy Spirit, Effectively and effectually working within us. This chapter is uh, it's read at funerals, Romans chapter 8. It's quoted when there is a catastrophe, like there was at the Alabama church earlier this week. We turn to these verses for, for hope and comfort. We see them stenciled on living room walls. We hear them quoted in speeches, mentioned in cards, and we even see them tattooed on people's body. Romans 8 is powerful. And I I mentioned to you last week, and it's just interesting, man, the feedback I got from just just this one statement that I made, good feedback, that there's not one command in all of chapter 8 of Romans, 39 verses, not one imperative, not really a grocery list of of, uh, action steps to take here, 39 verses of just promises. So even though there's not one command, that doesn't mean that there's not something for us to do. I want to clarify, okay? Um, Here's what... Our action plan should be for for Romans chapter 8. These are promises to believe. They're not commands to obey. They're promises to believe. So faith is what's required. So today, these verses, and maybe throughout the rest of the summer as we're digging deeper into this chapter, this is fuel for faith. These are God's promises to you. Promises are powerful. I remember reading the story of Jack Miller. He uh, resigned from his church. He disassociated from his denomination. He was just fed up and burned out. And his wife told him, you need to go away. We need to go away and take a break. And they went to Spain for three and a half years. And he studied only the promises in the Bible. For three and a half years, he only studied the promises in all of Scripture. And he came back transformed, reconnected to his denomination, got reordained into ministry. He hadn't disqualified himself. And the rest of his ministry was spent with a tremendous and incredible impact on people. Promises are powerful. These are God's divine pledges to us. These are truths to ponder, realities to grasp. These are vows to meditate upon and to fill our hearts with. A little bit earlier in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul used a wedding analogy to to remind us that we have died to the law and we have been joined to another, Jesus Christ. And now we can bear fruit unto life. He used that wedding analogy. And I'm going to play off of that. You can imagine that Romans chapter 8, Imagine you are at a wedding, okay? That's actually a Jewish wedding altar in the Middle East. I'm told. Cliff can verify that. <laughs> Imagine that you're at a wedding. It's actually your wedding. You're getting married, okay? And, and, and you're a bride. I know it's kind of weird to say that today, but just, just for the sake of analogy, you're the bride and Jesus is the groom. And it's time for you to, take, for you to hear his vows, He's going to read his vows to you. Just, so just imagine, as you look at these verses, this entire chapter, this is Jesus standing at the altar at your wedding. He's about to marry you, and he's reading his vows out loud. He's speaking these things over you. You know, I'm 47 years old. I've been in ministry for over 20 years, and I've done enough weddings now to recognize something really wonderful. No vow that I've ever read or quoted or even couples that have written their own vows, sometimes that's weird, and I want to see them before, before they're official, I've never heard vows that included commandments to the spouse. Have you? It's like, now it's time for the husband to read his vows. Okay. <clears throat> he uncrumples this paper, and he's shaking, he says, you will obey me? You will, and, and look, I'm not mocking you this. There are instructions in the Bible. There are rows for men and women, another sermon for another day, but I've never heard them take that opportunity to, to state all the commandments to the wife, Right? You will obey me. You will respect me. You will love me. You will follow my lead. You will honor me. I've never heard all that. Have you? And i would be awkward if you did. Wrong, wrong, wrong time for that. What I've heard are promises. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Till death do us part for richer or for poor. What are the vows? You remember? In, in, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, for better, for worse. Those are all promises that the groom is speaking over the bride. And he's saying, no matter what, I'm not going anywhere. I already know everything about you, and I'm staying. And especially in the Middle Eastern wedding, it would most of the time you would have pursued the bride, you would have uh, uh, pr- paid the, the dowry, the bride price. There was a lot involved. And you're saying, it's done, it's accomplished. You're mine, I'm yours forever, for life. So just imagine... That these are the wedding vows at your wedding, and Jesus is the groom, and he's speaking these these over you. There's no prenups, okay? You're mine forever. There's no turning back. When God makes a promise, he cannot break it because it was signed with his son's blood, and it was sealed by him sending his Holy Spirit. You are as secure as you could ever possibly be. I saw this. Just last week, uh, one of the pastors that I follow on social media, he always encourages me. He put this up. He said, 15 years ago today, I was burning brush and gasoline, exploded, covering 12% of my body with second and third degree burns. Carrie and I were 56 days from our wedding. Poor timing to get third degree burn all over your body, huh? And he said, I told her that I understood if she didn't want to marry me anymore. Can you imagine that, man? And he said, she sent wedding invitations from the burn Center ICU. How would you feel, man? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's what God says. He says, I know the worst about you. I see the worst things about you, and I'm not going anywhere because those weren't the things that attract. Your performance didn't attract me to you in the first place. I just set my love and my affection on you from all eternity. You're mine. So, this chapter is deep, and it's rich, and it would be really hard to overstate the way that the words in these chapter have been used throughout history to change people and to change the world, to change churches by changing individuals. Did you guys know that we recently, there's a long introduction today, but that's okay. That's okay, right? I want you to understand why these are so important verses here. We recently passed uh, an historic date in the life of our nation, Anybody know what it is? June 6, 1944, what happened on that day? We invaded, along with the Allied forces, the Nazi-occupied beaches at Normandy in France. That was 78 years ago. D-Day, Operation. It brought together land, air, and sea, the forces of the Allied armies, and what we'll what became known as the largest invasion force in all of human history. And the people who went in first were the paratroopers. They were actually dropped into Nazi-occupied France behind enemy lines in the middle of the night. (laughs) That was the most strategic and dangerous mission, if you didn't know that, was the paratroopers. There were 13,000 of them. They were flown around midnight over the channel and dropped where the the Germans would be waiting for them, waiting to defend their position, waiting to engage them with with gunfire. There were 13,000 of them. They had been trained for two years. They were an elite force. Paratroopers of the American 82nd and 101st Airborne Division. They were assigned the most difficult task. They would be dropped behind enemy lines before the beaches were actually storm before the the Navy fleets made the coastal landing they would go in first so they flew over England to France and it took about two to three hours and I was reading the testimony of one of those men his name was Sergeant Carwood Lipton and he talked about the C-47 airplanes that hauled the paratroopers there would be 18 men per plane now put yourself in, in this situation okay you're a young man 21 22 these guys were just kids you are about to go to war for the first time. You're scared. You're nervous. you got all this energy, and you're loading up in this airplane with 18 of your best friends that you trained with for two years. It's pitch black outside, and you're facing a two-hour flight over the ocean, and you're going to be dropped out of that airplane into enemy territory. What would be going through your mind? What would be going through your mind? He said, nobody's saying Nobody cheered, nobody joked, nobody really talked. He said the men sat along the sides of the plane facing each other, lost in their thoughts. So this is kind of in pictures what it would have looked like. You had a 100 to 150 pound (laughs) pack on you. You had everything that you could possibly need to succeed. So you were loaded down, you were weighted, literally and metaphorically. You had the burden of all your equipment and the burden of you're going into war and you may die. And they loaded up in that airplane, the C-47. There were 1,300 of those airplanes that hauled them over. And then they sat, 18, in a plane facing each other for a two- or three-hour plane ride. And they knew that this was coming. They were going to be dropped in the middle of battle. So what will be going through your mind? Well, the pilots gave the paratroopers a choice. They could ride with the door off of the airplane, giving them some fresh air and the opportunity to get out quickly if the plane was hit. Or they could ride with the door in place which gave them the opportunity to smoke. (laughs) Back then a lot of people, a lot more people than do today smoked. And I'm sure they were nervous and smoked a couple packs on that trip. Sergeant Carwood Lipton was the jump master of his plane. And that put him near the front of the aircraft. And he requested that the door be removed. And since he was the jump master, he laid in the floor and he hung his head out that door. And he couldn't sleep, he was too nervous. Most of the other men fell asleep, and it was around midnight, and he was lost in thought, and he looked down, and he saw a sight below him in that channel in the ocean down below him that no one had ever seen before, no one would ever see since. It was a sight that every man in the air that night never forgot. It was the Allied invasion fleet of 6,000 vessels heading toward Normandy. Those vessels included destroyers, battleships, minesweepers, and assault craft. They were carrying artillery, they were carrying extra weapons, ammunition, food, medical supplies, tanks, fuel, and most importantly they were carrying 132,000 ground troops. It was tremendous help. And Sergeant Carwood Lipton wrote, 40 years after that, he said that was a turning point for him, reflecting back. He said, an invasion fleet is the most impressive sight in the world. It filled him with courage and it filled him with hope. So here's this 21-year-old kid, he's in the air, he's about to be dropped behind enemy lines, he's got all these thoughts going through his head, and then he happens to look down and he sees 6,000 boats, and he knows, we can't can't lose this battle. (laughs) There's no way we can lose this. We got all the support from all the allied forces, from England, from America, we're not alone, we can't lose, we're not going to be defeated. He said that was a turning point for him. An invasion fleet is the most impressive sight in the world because it filled him with courage and with hope. Can I ask you a question? As a Christian, being called to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't, being surrounded with a, a hostile culture that's not sympathetic to your Christian worldview, being filled with this indwelling sin that Paul talked about, being faced with temptation, riddled with guilt, can I ask you a question? What's the most impressive sight that you could see that would fill you with hope and with courage? Because here's what I want to suggest to you is we're heading into summer now and we're going to spend some time going really slowly so we can smell all the roses and behold all the wonder of chapter 8. Might I suggest that Romans chapter 8 may do to you what looking down and seeing those 6,000 boats filled with ammo did for Sergeant Carwood Lipton. That's an impressive sight. Romans chapter 8 is an impressive sight. It really is. I know no chapter like this in all the Bible. So, here's the outline for today. Three three things. Number one, order matters. Order matters. There's a reason why Paul structured this verse the way that he did. Order matters. Secondly, and I'll just touch on this really quick, no condemnation. And then third, full liberation. Order matters. No condemnation. Full liberation. First, First, let me say this. I don't know how many people in here do not use the ESV, English Standard Version. Some of you may use the King James Version or the New King James Version. I just, a passing footnote here. Uh, if you use the King James Version, it actually says after verse 1, uh, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That section, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, is not in the best and earliest Greek manuscripts. So the ESV has not translated that. However, that exact same verse is in verse 4, uh, down below, so no worries about that. You're not losing the force of it at all. It's just placed in a different spot. It's not, it's not there twice. It's actually there once. So I wanted to, wanted to clear any confusion uh, confusion away, depending on what version you're using. So point number one, order matters. And here's what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul says, first thing, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why does he talk about no condemnation first? Because this chapter is really about sanctification. Some of it is about justification at the very beginning, but most of this is about sanctification. That's a fancy $10 word that means to be set apart for God. It means to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. It means practical, day-to-day, in the grind, obeying Jesus, following Jesus, putting your sin to death, and staying true to him. Most of this chapter is about sanctification. How do you go about doing that? But the first thing Paul says is something that relates to justification, and that simply means being made right with God. Why does he put these things in the order that he does? Why does he say that there's no condemnation before he talks about our liberation and, and sin's power being broken? Why does he do that? Because order matters. To say it another way, being right with God must precede doing right for God. Let that sink in for a minute, okay? Let me say that again. Being right with God must precede doing right for God. Before you get dropped out of that airplane and you get dropped behind enemy lines and you're engaging the enemy, you've got to know that you're secure. You've you, you got to know that the Father's affection has been set upon you, that you belong to him. There's no risk. Your performance in this war has absolutely no bearing on whether or not you stay in his good graces. Because your salvation was not a reward for fighting, okay? That's not what salvation is. And Paul wants to make clear that we understand that. Here's another way, I guess, that I could say it. God sent his son to free us from the condemnation of sin. And God sent his spirit to free us from the bondage of sin. And there's an order to those two things. Order is important. Order matters. We have to have assurance that we've been forgiven before we move into change Jesus's death released us from the penalty of sin and his resurrection life through the Spirit releases us from the power of sin there's an order here it's it's actually been illustrated really I think powerfully in the life of Jesus even some of the miracles he did you know Jesus would often respond to somebody that came to him for a miracle Sometimes he would declare that their sins had been forgiven first. Did you ever think that was strange? Remember the paralytic that was brought to Jesus in Matthew chapter 9? This guy's paralyzed. He can't walk. What's his obvious problem? He's lame. He can't walk. He needs to be healed. He needs to be transformed. So why in the world would Jesus say to him first, take comfort, my son. Your sins have been forgiven. You're like, uh, Jesus, are you are you Okay. This guy needs new legs. He needs power to be able to walk. But Jesus first said, take comfort, your sins have been forgiven. But then he said something really interesting. He said this in Matthew 9. He said, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise and go. Take up your bed and walk. And you know what that guy did? He took up his bed, rolled up his cot, and he walked. Why? To prove that he'd been changed, right? There was an order. Jesus said, first, I I declare that your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. There's an order. You're free now. Now you can actually do what I've commanded you to do. Before, you couldn't. You were impotent. You were paralyzed. You were attached to that cot. You couldn't get up and do anything. But it's interesting. Jesus even said, which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven or get up and walk? He says, but I want you to know that I have authority. Therefore, get up and walk. That's really what this passage is teaching. Paul is saying, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And you say, how do you know that? There's a four there. How do you know that? But Because sin's power has been broken. Look, ch- I'm changing. God's unleashing his power within me, and I'm seeing evidence of it every day. I'm hating my sins. I'm finding this indwelling presence and power to be able to say yes to Jesus and no to temptation. That's what he's saying here. Here's another way. I think the the most powerful way that this is demonstrated in the New Testament is in John's Gospel, chapter 8. That's one of my favorite stories in in the life of Jesus because it says that the Pharisees and the scribes caught a woman in the very act of adultery. She's caught literally red-handed. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they take her, and they set her in the midst. And I, it's, it, there's an interesting play in Greek in that story. It says, they placed her in the midst. And that word placed is the word for stand. They stood her up in the middle of where Jesus is teaching. They interrupted his teaching and they stood this woman there. She literally stood accused. And they said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says that we should stone her. What do you say? You remember this story? And there's a, a, a note there that says, this they said, seeking to test him to see what he would do. They thought they had Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Is he for the law or is he against the law? Is he a rebel? And you, you know what's interesting? It says, what, what did Jesus do? Do you remember? It says that he stooped and he started writing in the sand. Man, I wish I knew what he wrote. He did that twice, as a matter of fact. And then he stood up and he said, all right then, stone her. But wait, whichever, whoever among you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And you remember what happened? It says, from the oldest to the youngest, they all dropped their stones and they walked away. What did Jesus essentially say? She stood condemned. And he says, okay, who's going to condemn her? Who's going to punish her? Who's going to mete out judgment here? Who's qualified? None of you are, so you can leave. Don't you love that? Jesus excused, he excused her, her, her accusers. They went away. Each of them went away. And then it was just Jesus and her. And ironically, the only one who was qualified to condemn her did not. That's what John 3, 17, we know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But verse 17 is just as powerful. For the Son of man did not come to condemn the world but so that the world through him might be saved jesus didn't come to condemn us why we're already condemned he didn't have to come and do that it would have been double judgment right we're already condemned he came to rescue so jesus excused her condemners and then you remember what he said he said woman where are your accusers where are those people who condemned you are there none left and she says no one my lord and then he said this he says Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus did not condemn her. She was acquitted. But what did he say next? That wasn't everything he said. Listen, Jesus said in John 8 the same thing that Paul said in Romans 8. And he said it to that woman in the same order that Paul said to us. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And then what did he say next? Go and sin no more. (laughs) Right? Which comes first? No condemnation or freedom? Which comes first? Condemnation. We reverse that sometimes in the church. I believe we do. There's a reason Paul wrote this in the inspired order that he did. You cannot go out and live a fruitful and liberated life for Jesus Christ until you know where you stand with God. That there is no condemnation. There's none left. We have to know that. We have to. It's interesting The very beginning of chapter 8 of John starts out with uh, the Pharisees and the lawyers trying to stone a woman. And if you remember the very end of that chapter, that same crowd tried to stone Jesus. And one of the things he said was, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And then he said this, so if the son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. So John chapter 8 is really about freedom, and Romans chapter 8 is really about freedom, too. The whole chapter is about being liberated. The bonds and the power, the reigning power of sin being broken and canceled in our lives so that that we can serve Jesus. Can I ask you a question? Do you know how free you are this morning? Do you know how free you are? Do you know the depths and the the length of... And the height and the width of your liberation by Jesus Christ and by the sending of a Spirit. Man, I want you to. I want you to. It seems too good to be true. People say, ah, I don't know about that. Don't leave the door open for people to return to their life of, of, of sin and, and licentiousness. we got to be careful with this. This is a little bit risky, but it's not. <laughs> Jesus says, if I free you, you are truly free indeed. You are free indeed. This is the order you see. And you even see it in the life of Jesus. You know before Jesus ever, most, most theologians mark the start of Jesus' ministry when he was tempted in the wilderness. Do you know what happened right before the Spirit led Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days? Anybody here remember what happened first? His baptism. And do you remember what happened at Jesus' baptism? A voice from heaven booming said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus started his official ministry. That's interesting, isn't it? Before Jesus ever did anything, God made a declaration, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now go in that power and in that strength. And that's what Jesus did, and that's what we'll do. So, order matters. Have you guys ever set a wild animal free? Maybe that you found injured and you brought it home and you fed it and you gave it medicine and you mended it. I know a lot of you animal lovers out there, you do that all the time. But the time comes when it's, it's time to release them back into the wild. And maybe you have this little carrier with a cage and a front door. I, have you ever done that? I did it growing up. We had raccoons we would catch that had been mauled or something. And and then you got to take them out in the wild so you drive as close as you can to their original place of capture or rescue. And you open that front door. And you say, go on, get out, go. And what do they do? They, they walk out. And they're, they, they're not sure, Right? They're not sure, am, am I really free? And they're tempted, like, they look at you like, are, are you for real? Are you being real? I think if we're honest, Christians are like that. We're like, am I, is, is sin really canceled? Is there really no longer any condemnation? Can I, am I really being sent out there to live in the world on mission for Jesus? And Romans 8 is the answer to that. Absolutely. God wants you to know exactly how free you are, how far he went to free you, and who he gave you to continue to liberate you from that bondage of sin, his Holy Spirit. So order matters. Secondly, no condemnation. I talked about that last week. I don't want to beat a dead horse. But justification is the basis and the starting point for our sanctification. We have to be assured of our acceptance with God before we can grow. rankin Wilborn said this, God does not love you to the degree that That you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're in him 100%. So you have assurance of his love. This whole chapter really is all about assurance. Chapter 8 is. It's about assurance. The verdict has been rendered not guilty, righteous, all sins forgiven, all guilt removed, all punishment averted. You are covered. No accusation can get at you. J.I. Packer said this, he said, God is not going to change his mind about us because he justified us with his eyes wide open. He already knows the worst thing about us. We love those who know the worst about us and don't turn their faces away, don't we? Aren't those your best friends? The people who know the worst things about you and they're still your friend? <laughs> we're covered, we're hidden, we're safe. So, this is where I really wanted to go today. Uh, Third point is full liberation. Full liberation. Let me put this verse up and let's read it again together. And I want to just point out a few things. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So hit the pause button for a minute. Paul is using this this word, law, and it can be a little bit confusing in Romans chapter 8 because he's been using it in chapter 7 to mean the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. But he's using it here in the very beginning of chapter 8 to talk about a power, a presence, a principle, an authority. And he says the, the, the power of the spirit of life, and who's he talking about there? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 in Romans 8 is talking about the Holy Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life, that is the, the authority, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the power and the indwelling presence of sin. So you've got two things going on inside of you when you're a Christian. You've got this sinister, evil, deceitful, Presence that we call indwelling sin. It still resides within us. We're dead to it. Its power has been broken, but it's inside of us, and it's somewhat of a law. It's, it's an authority. It's a principle there, and it's trying to work. Indwelling sin is always trying to work to hinder you, to oppose you, to resist you. It's, it's antagonistic and rebellious. Anytime you want to do something good for Jesus, that indwelling pre- presence is going to try to hinder you and oppose you. Amen. Anybody experienced that even this morning? You're trying to do something good for Jesus. You want to get up and go to church. And your flesh was like, Yee haw, let's go. Right? No. Your flesh was like, Man, can I get one day where I just sleep and rest? I deserve this. And that's your flesh. That's just a probably a silly illustration. There's much more profound and sinister ones. But there's also another, this is the glory now of Romans 8. There's also another presence. Romans chapter 8 mentions the Holy Spirit by name more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. Now, some people, that may make nervous. I came from a Southern Baptist tradition, and i got to be honest with you. I'm just full disclosure today. Whenever there was a passage and the Holy Spirit was there, it made a lot of Baptists nervous. Because we thought, oh, yeah, be careful here. And sometimes there would be like yellow police tape around that passage. Like, move on, go ahead, nothing to see here. Everybody got really quiet. Maybe I'm the only one that grew up in a culture and a tradition like that. It's not their fault. It's my, I had a Bible too. But this whole passage talks about the presence and the endless power of the Holy Spirit being unleashed in your life as a Christian. The whole chapter really is about that. The whole chapter is about freedom and it's about liberty. In fact, put this up here. Yeah, the whole chapter is about freedom. Freedom from the condemning guilt of sin. That's first. And secondly, freedom from the condemning power of sin. In other words, we're not guilty of sin and we're not enslaved to sin. Those are the two truths we see simultaneously and in order in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and really the rest of the chapter. So Paul wants to talk about this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that breaks our bondage to sin, breaks our bondage to sin. I think that some Christians are living their life like Sergeant Lifton did, but without that amazing and impressive sight below him. It's interesting, when he's writing about and he said, all the guys were thinking, it's all on my shoulders. I've got to go down there, and I've got to be a hero. I can't get killed. It's all riding on me. They thought they were all alone, and that that entire outcome of World War II and D-Day depended on, depending on them. I think some people are living their Christian life just like that. You think I'm all alone? It all depends on me. I got to muster up the strength. I got to get it together, and you'll never—you'll never be enough, and you'll never do enough. Paul has a much better way. God has a better way. And He says, "Will you please look and see what I've given you?" You know, the night before he was crucified, the night he was betrayed, Jesus gave an extended teaching to his disciples about the Holy Spirit, the paraclete in Greek. It means the Helper, the Comforter. The advocate, he's sending to come alongside of you and even inside of you to help you. Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I go away, I'll send you the helper. He'll come. So in this passage, we see God sent his son to justify us, right, to, to break the penalty of sin, and he sent his spirit to fill us and indwell us and to continually liberate us from sin's presence. We're not alone. Praise God, we are not alone, and it's not all riding on our shoulders. We have help. And, man, it's a more impressive sight when you read this chapter than a 6,000 vessel-strong fleet of ships. You talk about minesweepers and destroyers and battleships. The Holy Spirit tells us we are not on our own. I think a lot of people are blind to the reality of what this passage tells us. That doesn't mean that they're condemned and helpless, but it means they're living that way. And i got to tell you, friend, that's a terrible way to live your life as a Christian, to feel helpless. When you feel helpless, you should open your Bible up to Romans chapter 8 and speak to that lie. You are not alone. You're not helpless. You're not condemned. (laughs) Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says there's no condemnation. And the very end says there's no separation. And in the middle, it says there's no defeat. You can't lose. You cannot lose this war. The outcome has already been settled and you have all the strength, all the power, all the backup ammunition and infantry you could ever need. God's given it to you. How close is it? It's dwelling inside of you. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit is God inside of us. That's how close God is to you in the daily grind. I think the rest of this chapter was written so that we can answer this question, what help what help could I possibly get from God to live the Christian life? Where's God's grace when I need it the most? Right here, right now. You have Romans chapter 8, the answer that. You have the Holy Spirit. He is alive. He has made God's grace personal and active and unleashed that within you. That's what this is telling us, Romans 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. When we ask, like, what help do we have? God didn't say, Well, I gave you my law. What else do you need? Does that help? <laughs> Does the law help you when you feel weak and defeated and no strength? No. God sent his spirit. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Listen to this. Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. There you have it. This whole chapter is how you walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And he's going to tell us a little bit later, that means we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. Then we're enabled to put to death sin, remaining sin, indwelling sin. We're able to slay it, able to engage it, we're able to kill it, to starve it. We're not without help and we're not without hope. And man, that matters. I remember when I was younger, there was a guy whose name was Michael Wilson, and he did not like me. And he was mean, he was big, he was strong. He actually was from Memphis, Tennessee, and he had been in a gang. I was so intimidated by him. And somebody told him that I said something mean about his girlfriend, which I did not. I said she was pretty. (laughs) And he wanted to kill me. This is a true story. He really did. He wanted to kill me. He saw me in a restaurant on a Friday night uptown, and he picked a chair up and threw it at me, and it hit the window. He said, if I ever see you again, I will kill you, Clayton. I'm going to kill you. And i was—I got to admit, I'm scared to say this now. I was a little bitty back then. 14, 15 years old, I was scared to death. Then I went home, and I was just freaking out. My brother's like, what's wrong with you? And I said, Michael Wilson's what's wrong with you, what, uh, what's wrong with me? He said, Michael Wilson, why are you afraid of him? I said, because he's bigger than me. I remember my brother said, you don't need to worry about him. I'll take care of Michael Wilson. And my brother, next Friday night, he said, let's go to town. <laughs> and my brother went to town with me. And I saw Michael Wilson for about two seconds. And he looked at me and he looked at my brother. And Michael Wilson went bye-bye. Because my brother was a force to be reckoned with. And my brother went and talked to Michael Wilson. I do not know to this day what he said to him. I don't know what he did to him, but I never saw Michael Wilson again. It's a true story. I never saw the guy. I don't, he, may have, he may be dead. For, he may be under a slab of concrete in Paragould, Arkansas somewhere. I never saw the guy again. But I can tell you this. I can tell you this. Those, no, no little brother, there's, there's no greater words of comfort that a little brother can hear than, than you don't worry about Michael Wilson. You go with me. <laughs> I'm with you. And the Holy Spirit is closer than that. He's within us. He's within us. I was still a little bit scared going downtown after that. My brother, eventually, he couldn't go with me all the time. But the Holy Spirit's with you, and you can't get rid of the Holy Spirit. But you know what you can do? Forget He's there. You can forget He's there and ignore Him. Forget His power. Forget His presence. Don't you love the fact that the the picture here is of walking? Not sprinting. Walking. You know what that means? That means a lifestyle, a day-to-day activity. You are walking in the Spirit. Now, listen... This is not a command, it's a promise. Jesus is saying, hey, you walk not according to the flesh, but you walk according to the Spirit. And when you walk according to the Spirit, the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in you. You can actually obey God's law when you're walking in the Spirit. And you know what the summary of obeying God's law is? Love. Does anybody here have a hard time loving? Do you find it difficult to love? Not the feeling, the action. The action. For God so loved the world that he felt funny about it. No, he gave his son. He did something. Does anybody in here find it difficult to love difficult people? Do you need help with that? Well, then Romans 8. Man, Romans 8's your jam then. That's your jam. Walk according to the Spirit so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in you. You walk according to the Spirit. And listen, don't worry. We're going to get all into how you do that and what that looks like. The rest of the chapter talks about it. You know, that's, this is not the only place that, that that's mentioned. It's mentioned in Galatians 5, and it's actually a command there. The command is to walk in the Spirit. Check this out. But I say, walk by the Spirit, present active indicative commandment. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So Galatians says it two ways. Walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. There's another passage in Ephesians 5. I don't know if I put that in there. Did I? I did. Check this out. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore... Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but what? What's it say there? Be filled with the Spirit. That is a command too, and it's interesting, man. This is a passive command. (laughs) It's telling us, it literally says this, be being filled with the Spirit. So Paul is telling you in Romans, it's a promise. In Galatians, it's a command. And here in Ephesians, it's a command, but it's a passive command. They say it a different way. Walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. It's all saying the same thing. So don't be confused when you see that different language in the New Testament. And listen, this is not some experience that only elite Christians have. The Spirit of God is within you if you're in Christ. He's going to say that later. If you are in Christ, you had the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. And He is for you and He is with you and He's been sent by God to help you to bring to mind all the things that you've been taught. Jesus said he would help with that. He will help you glorify Jesus. He will empower you to say no to sin, no to the fleeting pleasures of sin, and yes to the surpassing pleasure of obeying Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit's role is and function is. That's his first and foremost. I don't know, when you think of the Holy Spirit and you think of power, ten different things may come to your mind. Romans is telling us this ought to be the first thing I have the Holy Spirit within me and he has given me tremendous and incredible and unsurpassed power. Now the next question is to do what? The answer to that do what is to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. That's what the Holy Spirit's primary function and role is in your life. Is to help you obey God. To help you to say no to flesh. To help you kill sin. You, can't do, you cannot kill sin without the Spirit. A little bit later in verse 13. Paul is going to make another promise, and he's going to say this. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, hopefully all of us are trying to slay sin. I hate sin. I want to kill it. I want to kill it when the first little sprig of of sin sprouts up in the the crack of the sidewalk, right? I want to uproot it right then. If I'm not doing that in the Spirit, it's, it's an exercise in futility. I mean, guys, I cannot think of a more practical day-to-day in the grind truth that we need than this. When, when, when the temptation faces you, and to look, it's Father's Day. Okay, dads, let's get real. You're on your computer, and an ad pops up, or a picture pops up, or a, or a desire and an opportunity pops up. What do you do in that moment? What thoughts are combating in your head, in your heart, in your soul? You want to click on it? You want to Google something that's terrible, how do you combat that? How do you do that? Does Christianity have any hope for you, any help? Oh, yes, it does, right here. In that moment, you need to remember Romans 8. And what Christ tells you, what Paul tells you, what God tells you about yourself, you are not helpless against this sin. You are not hopeless against this sin. You do not have to say yes to this. And he gives you 39 verses filled with reasons why you had the power in that moment to resist sin and to kill sin and to uproot sin, to mortify is the 25 cent, I guess puritanical word that, that you used. You're not on your own, you're not helpless, you're not hopeless. John Murray said this, Jesus not only blotted out sin's guilt and brought us back to God, he also vanquished sin as power and set us free from its enslaving dominion. You are no longer enslaved to sin. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You need to be reminded of that truth. There's a song that Charles Wesley sang. We've sang it before here, I think. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. There's a powerful, man, the hymns have good, such great theology. There's a powerful line in there that and it says this. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Maybe quote that to yourself when you're confronted with that temptation. You can only kill a forgiven sin. You know that? The only sin that you have any hope of killing is a forgiven sin. And your sin has been canceled in Christ. You need to remember that. And you've been set free from its enslaving dominion. You have. That's the truth. So I'm I'm closing here, okay? You guys are doing great. I I wanted to get all this in today before we move on. So these are amazing realities spoken over you. There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation. You don't move in and out of condemnation. It's not waiting in the shadows over here, right? If we could go back to the wedding analogy, you know, I used to do when I used to do weddings at the very beginning, a wise pastor pulled me aside and he said, you know that, that thing, if there's any reason that anybody uh, here today, especially at a large wedding, you say, is there anyone here today who has an objection to this man, and this woman getting married, let him speak now or forever hold his peace? You remember that? You don't hear that much anymore, do you? <laughs> a wise pastor pulled me aside and he said, you know, that's not in the Bible, you don't have to say that. You could really get in trouble one day saying that. Sometimes people are an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, look, like, I love her, I love her. Still, somebody tackles them. Imagine that you're you're at the you're at the altar, you're about to get married, Jesus is your groom, he's speaking these truths, and somebody says, Does anybody here have any reason for these two spouses to be joined together? You know who has the loudest objection? We do. We do. We feel condemned, we think, man, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to belong to Jesus. And Jesus steps in and interrupts you, and he says, hey, I've taken care of all this. There's no condemnation right now. There's no. You're, you're with me. You're in me. I've covered it. You're covered. You're atoned for. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. And then he says, and also, I'm going to be with you forever. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to continue to liberate you. And I'm going to remind you, these. what do men most need today? What do dads and husbands most and, and single men, too, most need today. We need freedom, we need power, and we need perpetual reminders of those two things, right? Which are strength. And we have it all in Romans 8. And maybe you would say, Who am I to accept such an offer like this? Who am I? Who am I to believe this and accept this? You, and you have a point, but listen, who are you to reject this? <laughs> who do you think you are to reject this? God has so much grace and mercy and power to pour out on us. We're never in danger of him running out. You know, in the Old Testament, there's the story of Isaac blessing his son, Jacob, who was a deceiver and tricked him into blessing him. He blessed him, and then Esau came in and said, bless me too, Father, and he said, I can't. I don't have any more. That's it. I gave it all to him. I I got a curse for you, but no blessing. We are never in danger of God running out of blessing. He has riches and riches and storehouses full of treasure to pour out on us and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. But there is an urgency here. We're not in danger of him running out. The urgency is not that he may run out of grace, but that you may run out of time. So I just want to speak to those of you here today who may have not tasted the goodness of God's grace. Maybe you never have believed this promise. There's therefore now no condemnation. And I just want to invite you today. Is there is there a better time than now to cry out to God for mercy? Say, Lord, set me free. I feel this bondage. I feel these chains rattling on my hands. I'm in shackles. Will you please set me free? Will you please forgive me? Will you please show mercy to me and compassion to me and rescue me? God has never turned away a humble repentant sinner and he won't do that today either. So as we close let's let's pray because we're all on an on-ramp right now. There's an on-ramp to eternity that we're all on and there's two roads one leads to condemnation and misery and captivity and eternal curse and the other one leads to liberation and freedom and blessing and forgiveness and glory and listen Jesus experienced the one so that you and I could experience the other have you trusted him have you believed him have you turned from your sins and asked God's forgiveness and favor on your life let's pray Lord Jesus thank you so much for these truths they're deep, they're profound, and I, words fail me, Lord. I feel so inadequate to even preach on this passage, Lord. But I know you've called me to, and I know you've called us to, to hear your voice, to hear these truths today. I pray that they would stick. I pray that we would bleed them. I pray that we would repent of our unbelief. I pray that we would turn, Lord, from maybe a futile shallow method we've had of combating sin in the past, that these realities would wash over us in new, powerful, and fresh ways. We would realize the indwelling power we have from your Holy Spirit, that he is with us, that he is for us, that we have his full power at our disposal. Pray that we would fill it and that we would use it today, Lord, and experience continued freedom from our sins. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have our song of reflection now. Selah song, it's where we just pause and reflect on what we've heard. And maybe this is the time, Craig mentioned this earlier, maybe you have a broken relationship with a parent, with a dad, maybe you have a broken relationship with a son, or maybe you don't have uh, maybe a physical family and you're you're lamenting that today, This, this is your time to just go to your perfect father who sent his perfect son and his perfect spirit to rescue you and to empower you. This is your time to meditate on him, meditate on these realities. And we have a prayer team in the back. We would love to meet with you, to encourage you, to pray with you, to strengthen you. And we also have in the back, we don't pass an offering plate. We give our tithes and offerings and donations in that box. And there's a card there. It's a connect card. And I would love to hear from you. You can fill that out. Put your contact information on there. If you want to talk to a pastor, you want to talk to me. You want to talk to one of our elders or leaders or just have a question, fill that out, drop it in there. We're not going to harass you or sell your information. We'd love to, to meet with you and help you and encourage you. So spend this time reflecting, or you can come to the back with our prayer team.
2: Yeah. Amazing grace. How sweet this Saved a wrench like me I once was lost But now I'm found Was blind But now I see grace that taught My heart to fear and grace my fears. the so- sun we just praise you for your Holy Spirit, Father, that we are not left alone, Father, but that we have power in you, Father. I just pray that you would just open our eyes to the times that we just need to call upon you, Father, that we just know that we can't do it without you, Father. You just give us the strength, Father, just to push through those times and just rely on you, Holy Father, and realize that you are there with us. Father. We just praise you and we love you in Jesus' name
3: amen thank you guys we just have a couple of announcements before we are dismissed Um, so this is the third Sunday of the month today and usually that means our student ministry will gather but because it's Father's Day we want our families to be able to enjoy that time together so we're gonna meet next Sunday the 26th at our normal time 630 or sorry six o'clock six to eight student ministry next Sunday also this week not this week. Next week, we have our prayer gathering. Every time there's a, a month with five Wednesdays, we gather together to pray. Uh, the exception this month is we're going to gather on a Thursday instead. So Thursday, June 30th at 630, um, we will be gathering for a time of prayer. You can scan that QR code, look at the Church Center app to find where we'll be meeting for that gathering. And for this week, we will have our grow class once again, same location. If you haven't been able to make the first two, please don't let that stop you from joining us. If you're interested in growing together, we're talking about the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practices, and I can't think of a more fitting sermon than what we just heard to just enjoy and know and remind ourselves that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. That's what the spiritual practices are for. So if you want to learn more about that and grow, please join us this Thursday, 630. And again, you can find the location through our church app. And lastly, today is the last day for us to turn in our uh, baby bottles, our donations for the Central Florida Pregnancy Center. So if you have those, please see uh, the Drakes in the lobby. They have a, a table set up for that. We want to bless that ministry the best we can because of the incredible work that they're doing in our community. And I believe that's all the announcements we have, so if you'll stand with me, we'll read our charge as we do every week. Um, Just yet another reminder of who we are and whose we are and uh, what our mission and our purpose is. So read this aloud with me. I am a witness. I've been called to minister to my neighborhood In both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent. Happy Father's Day.